You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. And this week, uh, we are going to be talking about fermented fish, or as Brandon likes to say, fishies. I do not say and fishies. apparently a fifth taste that I was not too familiar with. Umami. That's the taste. Yes, this is episode 16. And before we get into all that... I am Daniela, and... I'm Brandon. But before we get into anything else, there's one thing, uh, not a whole lot of news this week on for anything fermented, but there was one nice video that was put out by a PBS series, and uh, it's called It's Okay to Be Smart. And they kind of, there's not too many of them yet. I think there's like five or six, but one of the, these first videos that was just released was on knowing your microbe or mainly microbe is what it's called and meet your microbe. It's a YouTube video. There's a link to it in the show notes. You can find the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 16. And uh, it's, it's uh, interesting. It's like a four or five minute video and it goes into understanding more about the gut microbiota and just the mic, the, the bacteria and microbes all over the skin, body, everywhere. Oh, and just to um, confirm, why are we talking about that? How is that related to fermentation? Because microbes are a part of fermentation, and so it's not completely on topic, but it, it just it's, it's, has so much to do in intertwined probiotics, everything to do with fermentation, that any time there's a really good introductory or otherwise thing to do with microbes and the microbes. So fermentation enhances the microbe in our system. Potentially. Potentially. There's a lot that we still don't understand about how things interact. Okay. But it's becoming much more popular for people to understand or to, to start to recognize that bacteria aren't just bad. And there's a there's a fun little uh, like cartoon in this as well, where there's bacteria holding up a sign that says we are the 99%. So if you want to understand how that calculation happens and why bacteria are 99%, watch the, watch and, the video. And why your left hand has different bacteria than your right hand. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And oh, and something in the comments from the uh, producer of this said uh, someone was asking about how many how much how much bacteria is actually on us or in us like how like you know because we hear the the nine tenths or this as their calculation of the 99 percent um you know understanding all that watch the video but uh in the comments there was uh you have anywhere from two to five pounds of bacteria on and in you so two to five pounds of my body weight is just bacteria yes sweet so most of them are in your gut and intestine. And so that's why we bring it up here too, is because it's, it's fermentation, food, all has to do with the gut, all of things, these things interact. And so anytime there's something interesting like this, I just like to point it out. And that's, that's one of them. So go watch that video if you haven't already seen it. Most likely they have not seen it. Unless they follow us on Facebook, which you're welcome to do. 6,000 people have seen it. 6,000? Yeah. That's all? I know. Not that much. I mean, seeing it go around a little bit on Facebook too. So hopefully more people will see it. It's a good video. Watch it. On to our main event for today. Fermented fish. The umami. event. It's uh, some really interesting stuff. So the reason why it's kind of fermented fish and umami is we should probably... St- because the fish is the umami. The fish fish has umami in it. Fermented fish arguably has more. Now, what is umami? It's kind of that savory taste. It is one of the fifth, one of the five senses. Taste, or taste. Or, excuse me, yes. One of taste. the five tastes. One of the five tastes and that it's we okay, perceive through our taste buds. And it's okay if you have never heard of it. Um, as Brandon will explain to you, we most commonly are only exposed to four of those, not five. Yeah, there's a few things in our education that most people have received, at least in the United States. And oftentimes in other areas as well, there's a few things that are kind of mixed up with, with food stuff. But, you know... Before we get into any of that kind of stuff, just a, a, an interesting way to dive into umami and that kind of savory flavor is to talk about our friend MSG. And Wait, I thought you were talking about the freaking five tastes. Talking about umami, which is the fifth taste. Oh, you're not going to explain to them just the, the, the four tastes and what the fifth one is? Sure. If you would like to do that first, we can do that. That was a little bit later on that I had that. But yes, we, we have those five tastes. What are those tastes? Uh, oh, you're asking me. Well, you're um, the one in this now. Sweet, bitter, sour, and 
what's the fourth one? Salty. Salty. Come oh, on, I love salt. That's yes. funny, but I don't remember. That. Okay, yeah. So and so we have up to 100 taste receptors in each cell of our taste buds, um, and they these taste uh, the the sense of taste is a chemical reaction in the mouth that sends this information to the brain so that we understand what we're tasting. And so those senses or those tastes categories are different things that our receptors can receive and send up to the brain. Why they want to send those different things to keep us alive, to keep us alive, to keep us getting the nutrients that we need and different things like that. Well, also alive as in give us a warning if something tastes bad to not eat it. Yeah. Like salty and sour detect, um, Although arguably we don't follow that though, because sometimes something that tastes bad is not going to kill you. In some, we're and talking about evolutionary wise what why these things are important to us and diet wise and 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 so it, it, salty and sour detect uh, salt and acid. Makes sense. Salt is something that we need, and so it's a good thing that we we recognize that and we need you know balanced acid of you know like we're understanding that kind of stuff and and bitter. Uh, warns us of foods containing poisons. There are bitter flavors in many cuisines and flavorings in food. Not so much in you know American cuisine or, or a lot of Western cuisines. There's not as much bitter. I don't know that there are many bitter foods, period, though. I'm sure there are some, but it's not something people just enjoy eating bitter food. Well, you think about salads to a certain extent. Like uh, there's bitter greens that are mixed into salads. I guess, um, yeah. So there's there's definitely different things that don't contain poisons, but bitter is one of those important things because a lot of things that are bitter aren't things that we should be eating. Then there's sweet, which gives a guide to calorie content of foods. So we need calories to survive. Now, we're not even going to get into it, but this these kind of receptors are what food companies are able to do when they're packaging or, or making processed foods to be able to tap into these more to get us to, Eat you know, more, sweet, salty, different things. Yes, it's it to crave these kind of things because we need those kind of we need throughout history. We've needed that kind of sensation. If something was sweet, which sweet was not always so, so readily available in a processed form. So if something tasted sweet, it was a good thing to eat. And um, things get a little bit more confusing now with those kind of things. But we're not going to get into that. But then there is the fifth umami. Which is the taste of amino acid glutamate, and it signals protein-rich foods. Now, the reason why I wasn't going to get into this first, and so now I'll jump back up to where umami comes from. So why were you not going to get into it first? So that we can understand what glutamate is, where umami came from. And the most important thing to, uh, to understand about this is it really, while throughout history there's been different philosophers and writers that have thought that maybe there there were other there was something else beyond the sweet sour salty and bitter that kind of rounded out flavors the full flavor a scientist in japan you know uh focused on seaweed because seaweed is something that has um been a part of for over a thousand years it's been a part of japanese cuisine in soup stocks in adding kombu to seaweed to soup stocks. Now, in 1908, the Japanese chemist um, Kikunai Ikeda found the the kombu um, was rich in the monosodium glutamate. Now, monosodium, monosodium glutamate, MSG, is how most people re- recognize that at, as, which can seem kind of like a scary thing. But it's what creates that unique savory taste sensation in our mouths. It's what creates that, that fullness of different flavors. And, um, you know, it's, and it, and it is different and, and people have argued or scientists argued for a long time that it was not different from sweet, sour or salty or bitter. It was something that was a part of that, but it wasn't as separate as those. And it wasn't until 2001 that, um, you know, a biologist demonstrated that humans and other animals have specific receptors for MSG. They have specific receptors on their tongue to to send to the brain that, hey, this is high in MSG. Again, a protein-rich food is probably why that is, is being sent to the brain, to signal this is something good to eat. And uh, so MSG, though, before we get any farther, it's important to look at that because 
have you heard much of MSG? Did you ever like hear like, you know, that, you know, Oh, I'm going to avoid things with MSG in it or different things like that. I have not, but it doesn't sound good. I will admit there. Yeah. If you see MSG on a label, it, a lot of people will kind of be turned off by that. Very popular in Asian cuisines of different places. But, you know, it, it is a naturally occurring product. It's something that was originally extra, uh, extracted from wheat and gluten proteins. Now, though, um, companies produce MSG through um, little bacteria farms that excrete the, the MSG liquid as it grows. So natural in a certain extent, but you can get bacteria to do all kinds of different things. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if... Uh, How natural it really yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's natural. And it's a naturally occurring thing, but you can get MSG in powder form now, which before you could only get MSG or glutamates in general, which uh, are what give that umami flavor. But does does it an everyday person even use MSG? I mean, have you ever gone to a store and be like, I'm going to go buy some MSG? You can get it in the Asian grocery stores. And that's where the problems originally came from. There was, um, you know, oh, the, really? I didn't know that. Uh, in the late 60s, uh, it was in the 1960s that MSG was uh, was blamed for the Chinese restaurant syndrome, um, which was people complaining of headaches, burning, pressure, chest pain, different things like that after eating at Chinese restaurants. And it was very popular to put MSG, powdered monosodium glutamate, into all of their food? All their food because it makes it taste fuller. It t- makes it taste more savory. It, tastes, it makes it taste better, arguably. And it's in powdered form, excreted from bacteria, so it makes it very easy to apply. Just dump a lot in. Now, the important thing to, to, to understand is that most people that shy away from MSG, and, you know, there was many years where I never even looked into it, and MSG just sounded bad. And I'd heard that other people said it was bad. So I didn't really look into it much. But toxicologists, you know, did research the effects of MSG and found it to be a harmless. It's a pretty harmless ingredient, even in, in its powdered doses, form. doses, though. But in Just most like people, anything. even in large doses, it's fine. Sure, some people might have sensitivities. Maybe some of this issue, though, the Chinese restaurant syndrome was was other issues, you know, gluten intolerance or otherwise that was kind of getting mixed in with thinking that it was... That MSG, because that was the easiest target. Many different, you know, reasons as to why this became such a scare in the 1960s. Um, but as far as eating even the powdered MSG, you know, it's totally fine for the most part. So if you see it on ingredients, sure, maybe it's not so bad. I mean, especially a lot of packaged Asian, like Japanese or or Chinese packaged foods will have MSG in it because, hey, it makes things taste good. And uh, you can also, I forget what the ingredient is, but there's another sneaky phrase that's MSG on many packaged foods so that it doesn't look like it's MSG. So is that a cultural thing? That's mainly like, I mean, does the United States use a lot of MSG in any of their food? Well, if I could remember what that packaged thing was, which I cannot... But there's there's another term for MSG, which can be used on ingredient labels in the U.S., and it is MSG, but it just sounds better or doesn't sound so bad or is hidden more but, easily. So in, we use it, too. It is used in some things, but I, it's not as given that common. I don't have that reference on, I can't tell you exactly what that is or how common it is. It's not nearly as common, especially in the form of writing MSG on something, you know, uh, Food scientists have found many other ways beyond MSG to trick the mind into thinking that things are amazing. Although if a person's really worried about MSG, I mean, you're going to find monosodium glutamate in foods naturally occurring. And that umami flavor can be had naturally. So, you know, that, I guess, if anything, is because it, it became very popular in China and Japan to use this MSG this powdered MSG. And, you know, with all the culinary traditions in Japan and China, it's just is very interesting that it became such a thing of like, just let's just throw this on and, and it will kind of... It seems that the other word is hydrolyzed vegetable pro- protein. That is MSG? Yeah. Awesome. That's another word for it. So if you see hydrolyzed vegetable protein, then you're eating MSG if you're trying to avoid it. And I but suppose it, that doesn't sound as bad. The word vegetable and protein and hydrolyzed. I can't say that word. Hydrolyzed. Hydrolyzed 
just sounds like it's been mixed or something or oh yeah just a or... just a little mixing in the, <laughs> in the laboratory no no harm done here uh yeah so it's 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 again not something even even hydrolyzed vegetable protein it doesn't it doesn't toxicologists at least say that it is relatively harmless now if you're eating a lot of fermented foods and or using oh fish... i guess another name for it is natural flavoring if it's used in a, in a low i i we won't get into the product labeling of things but i think it's along the lines of if it's if it's in a low enough dose many chemicals or other derived things you know uh, can be in natural flavorings so interesting stuff but not to be too afraid of msg and msg is a part of umami so it's just important to kind of kind of think of those kind of things um in when we're thinking in the greater context of fermented foods in general umami is a part of a lot of fermented foods it's also that umami experience is a part of things like tomatoes you know and so that is part of the reason why you get vine ripened tomatoes or a you know especially a vine ripened tomato right out of a garden versus the gas ripened like the picked green transported and then gas ripened um what's gas ripened well, tomatoes that have been ripened not on the vine, but been ripened post-transportation. Or, but they're still ripened on their own, just not on the vine. Well, some vine. are actually gas-ripened. I mean, you apply a gas to turn it red. Oh. Um, I don't know all that process, and it's really kind of beyond the scope of, of this. But so is that how majority of tomatoes in the grocery store are, would you unless say? Unless they say vine-ripened, ro- yes. And the oh. reason why they I mean, I think grocery store tomatoes don't taste very good at all. They have no flavor, but... And they are missing the umami flavor That's because very, they have they have some supposedly, but they're not to the same extent as a vine ripened tomato has a much larger umami flavor to it. It has more glutamate in it that that provides that savory flavor. See, to me, the only difference I've ever noticed is I think store bought tomatoes well have a bland flavor, and they're just they don't have much of a flavor. Um, and of course some vary but for the most part they all kind of have that just very flavorless taste whereas um tomatoes straight from a garden i don't think that's the thing i was thinking i was thinking more like it's sweeter i mean fuller yeah so it's that rounding out umami yeah. you can kind of think of as that rounding out of that full flavorness and and it is part of uh, i i've never liked tomatoes store-bought tomatoes until i started growing tomatoes in a garden or have tried tomatoes fresh from a garden you know i didn't like tomatoes unless they were in salsa oh, or something so like that amazing tomatoes and some salt oh greatness because you have your saltiness you have your sweetness you have your umami you have your acidity you got a nice rounded flavor and it hits your tongue everywhere and that, oh, that's, that's another thing, you know, just, just when we're talking about tastes in the mouths, if you were raised having known about the, the tongue map, you know, um, and I don't know if you remember for this from school, but you know, the different regions on your tongue that have different flavors or tastes. Yeah. The sour is in a certain area. The, the bitter is in another area. And, um, while some people do kind of have a perception, an illusion of that being the case, that they tasting things in certain areas, all of our taste buds have receptors for all of our tastes. Well, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. So it's like what you eat something sweet and if it's on the wrong side of the tongue, you just don't taste the sweetness. It's, I think that's always been a little ridiculous, but. Well, yeah, it was, it's, you know, the tongue Mac was first like, derived in, in 1901. Let me you know. put that piece of chocolate just in this corner because that's the part of the tongue that can taste it. I mean, really. Well, you know, Not you kind of kind of to- coat the entire entire tongue anyway. But it wasn't until 1974 that a scientist, uh, Virginia Collins, act- uh, Collings, actually questioned this and found that the variations were small and in- insignificant, if there at all. And so, you know, you really can taste everything everywhere, including umami. And uh, there was never a tongue map spot for umami, so I don't know where that would have gone on that anyway. But that was in 1974. I was in school beyond that and they were still teaching. And as far as I know, a lot of textbooks still have the tongue map in them. It doesn't matter that it's wrong. They just still keep it in there. Teach the kids the wrong thing. It looks pretty. I guess. And it doesn't, it's, it's an, it's an oversimplification, oversimplification. You know, most likely it's downright inaccurate, but it continues to be in textbooks. So just understand that taste is, you know, taste is very complex. A lot is not understood about how umami is received into the taste receptors transferred to the brain yes there's the, the pathways are understood but 
you know, a lot of things around taste are still mysterious of sorts. So it's uh, like so many things in science are just still unknown. Uh, taste is another one of those. Oh, another thing that has umami, breast milk. So our first experience of umami is in breast milk, that fullness of flavor. So what, did someone like just decide to drink a whole bunch of breast milk and decide, oh, I, I taste that wholeness? No, there is, there's uh, glutamate in it. Oh, okay. You can measure these kind of things to see. So you can, there, you can find charts for how much glutamate, L-glutamate or so, other glutamate is in these different foods. And Parmesan is another one that has a lot in it. A lot of fermented foods that's why have. It seems like a lot of foods that you'd add, well, not besides breast milk, but a lot of foods that you would just add as a, you know, if there's a meal that doesn't taste good or like if you eat something, sometimes just adding Parmesan to it just makes it better. <laughs> I wonder if yeah, that's why. And, and the longer hard aged cheeses are higher in umami content than say, you know, the shorter aged cheeses. And so a lot of those hard ones are generally, um, you know, added to dishes to add that umami flavor. You know, Parmesan is definitely one of those that comes along with some different European cuisines. Does salt have it? I feel like salt just makes everything taste better. Salt is salty. Yeah, I know, but. Well, salt when involved with fermentation you know, as things ferment, bacteria create, you know, more of that umami flavor as well. Really? I, I wouldn't think from fermented things have that fullness. Well, you know, it's we're talking about kind of, Parmesan. We're talking about what we're going to talk about. Fish I guess sauces, Parmesan's all these different kinds I'm talk- of things. I was thinking more like sauerkraut or kimchi or. Well, kimchi definitely has it. I mean, well, really? kimchi generally has I just, I sauerkraut. Or, I mean, sorry, has fish sauce in it. Oh, but still, I don't get that whole fullness of it. Well, it's something that's kind of a being able to differentiate exactly what that is because I would have never thought about it being tomato until I read that it was in tomato and then that made sense. I can see that. But I think there's – look up a list and I'll try and remember to add that to the show notes. I don't have it in the show notes yet, but I'll try and add a list of some of the different foods that have umami and the different levels that the glutamate is in these things so that you can kind of get a better understanding of all the different things that have it. So you can start to maybe recognize it more. Because so are it is a you, learned skill. Are you transitioning into the fish sauce idea going with? Well, the- yeah. I mean, yeah. Kimchi has fish sauce. I just made some kimchi that you tried and you said you liked it and it had fish sauce in it, right? I, I guess it had fish sauce, I mean, yes, but yes, I, guess, I liked but you it. liked it, right? <laughs> yes, um, I did. Yeah. So fermented fish, there's a lot of fermented fish throughout history. And part of the reason for that is, you know, preservation. That's the main reason why fermented fish ever became a thing. Or anything was ever fermented for that matter. Well, yeah. And then people found out that it, that these fermented things taste amazing. And then they continued fermenting them even beyond the need to actually do it anymore. But preservation, because, okay. And they're super healthy. Throughout history, remember, before refrigeration, when either fishing near the coastline or when ships started going deeper out into the to the waters and fishing, they needed a way to get all these large amounts of populations of fish, of especially small populations fish. Populations of fish. Sorry, schools of fish, I guess That's you would great. say. Schools of fish. And then, uh, you know, so you got that in rivers, you have it in coastlines, you have it everywhere. If they're going to fish and capture all these fish, they've got to be able to preserve it because fish go bad pretty fast. And... Fermented fish is definitely one of those fine, fine lines, again, of fermented and rotten. Now, fermented fish is not rotten, but sometimes, especially if someone doesn't grow up in a culinary tradition where fermented fish is very much so a part of it, can smell a little funky. Yeah, I can't imagine. Can't imagine I guess what? I can. Fish sauce, but... Fish sauce is amazing. Oh, it, it tastes amazing. It smells disgusting. Yeah, but I think the more, like that, the more you smell it, the less it's that way and i think the more that you associate it with foods the less it smells bad i know i don't think that my perception of its smell is ever going to change sure if i'm in a room or in around it it's kind of like being around anything you just tend to forget that you're in a smelly room but entering that room every time it's it's going to smell gross even after it's been cooked um, no, not so much after. It it loses a lot of the smell. Mm-hmm. So no, just it's in its raw fermented form. Well, and you know, it, it, it is strong flavored if, or scent, if nothing else, you know, so, but it's that concentrated source of umami that 
many cultures have also used it for. You know, it was also a replacement for salt, to a, not replacement, but when salt was more expensive, not so readily available, just like so many condiments that we have today, you have to remember back in history at different points, these things weren't as readily available. Salt was very readily available throughout history in most, in a lot of regions, but it wasn't always as easy for certain areas. It was more expensive in certain areas than other areas. And there's do you, all the- Do you not need the salt to get fish sauce? You need the salt to get fish sauce, but- with that added umami oomph that you get from from fish sauce, you know, you get more of that fullness of flavor that salt kind of, you know, provides in a different way. You get that umami and that salt in one pat and you don't need as much salt. And in a lot of recipes throughout history, uh, fish sauce has replaced sauce or salt. So, you know, so so those are the main reasons it's just, it, it, that why people have fermented fish is for that umami, that concentrated umami flavor and preservation. You know, so throughout his history, it's I mean, it was several thousand years ago. Again, one of those mysterious fermented things. Don't know exactly when it happened, but Southwest China was most likely the first to be fermenting fish, and it was A what? Southwest China, oh, kind Southwest, of in the, okay. the Mekong River region, was was where fish was first fermented thought to be fermented, you know, and then it spread to the coastal regions and, um, you know, and then eventually it was applied to saltwater fish. So at first it was just freshwater fish, you know, and then the tech. Ooh, for the saltwater fish, do you not even need salt? Joking. You know, you need the salt, but many of the saltwater fish. Are super salty? I don't know if the fish themselves, I don't think of them as being super salty. I don't know. They I, don't, guess. I don't think they, if they flop out of the water, I don't think they're going to preserve themselves. Okay, good point. But I mean, it would be that would, then fermented fermented fish would have happened way before it thousands of years because it would have just happened naturally. True. That would be interesting though. But no, I don't. I don't believe that happens. Um, but some of those cultures that were salting their fish were dehydrating salt seawater, ocean water, so that they could get their salt that way. So through evaporation. But that's another topic. You know, one of the techniques. There, there's two major techniques is for that a how foreshadowing. What was that a foreshadowing? Were we you... might do. Would you like to cover salt at some point? Just do an episode on salt since it has so much to do with Never fermentation. Never thought that there would be so much about salt, but I guess sure. Yeah. All right. So Watch that, out. okay, that that was Coming an soon unexpected foreshadowing. Salt fermentation necessity. Some would argue maybe not necessity, but it's it's used in a lot of things. You have to have salt to ferment most of the stuff. Well, vegetables or fish. Fish, definitely. But I I don't don't think you can ferment. Well, I mean, you might be able to ferment some fish. You don't need as much salt. But this first technique, one of the main techniques for fermenting fish is with a lot of salt. And it's a simple process. It's been done throughout many different cultures. You take a lot of fish, add a lot of salt. You know, we're talking 10 to 30% salt. So way more than like when you're doing vegetable ferments. And then, you know, you know, it doesn't even have to be the whole fish. It can be the fish parts because maybe the, the fish, the good fish parts are being used to eat fresh and the guts and different things are being fermented. And then you mix that with the salt and allow it to ferment. You know, for and, how and long? we're talking, you know, for fish pastes, things that are a little thicker, you know, at least a month. For fish sauces, you know, up to, you know, 24 months or so. Wow. You know, and, and, and so in this technique, the fermentation process is just kind of adding to the flavor, but the salt, I mean, 10 to 30% salt, that's plenty to, to keep salt, I mean, to keep it preserved. So the salt is doing the preservation. The bacteria are just there as, you know, get a little bit more flavor in it. A little bit more oomph, a little bit more umami maybe as as well. Then there is the second main technique, which any of you sushi lovers out there may want to pay attention to this. Um, Not because it's sushi, but it's because of where kind of sushi came from. Um, Salting larger fish. So, you know, tunas or different kinds of fish, larger fish, not the little small mackerels or, or, or anchovies, which were very much so used for the first technique. The second technique uses larger fish and it salts them lightly. 
So not nearly as much. I don't have a percentage on it, but but just a lot less. What happens to the fish when you salt it? What do you mean what happens? Not, not as much happens to the fish, more happens to the bacteria. Because again, the bacteria what do you mean and the bacteria? microbes like, are what, what do you, let's the, say you salt the fish and you let it sit. What, and you come back a month later, what would you see? Are we talking the first technique or the second technique that I haven't really it gotten into? It either. We'll kind of get into that. I think the simplest way that I can say is that it, it the salt extracts liquid. And so that's where if you ferment it for longer, you get the fish sauce. So you get, you know, more liquid to it. And it's that liquid that becomes the fish sauce. Can you do something with the remains? Yeah, the remains are used uh, in the fish paste is the remains and the liquid kind of mixed pulverized together, mashed together. Oh, okay. But yes, the salt naturally releases liquids through osmosis like it does with vegetables. But then it's the, you know, it's what it's doing is preserving it by not allowing pathogenic or um, putrefying bacteria the salt keeps those from being able to rot the the fish which would smell really bad fermented fish smells bad enough depending on sure does um but rotten fish smells even worse but this the so the second technique this this other main technique throughout history that has been used to ferment fish is you take larger fish you you salt it lightly so in this process the salt is not enough to preserve it the salt in that can only really preserve it for um you know keep it from spoiling for a few weeks so then you let it spoil well no it doesn't spoil because it's salted lightly and then put into a grain based substance. So uh, rice or, you know, vegetables or fruits, something carbohydrate rich actually is, is, is what it was. So, you know, and this was very popular in uh, Japanese cuisine is taking larger fish, salting them lightly, stuffing it into rice and letting it ferment, you know? So uh, the sense, the salt is not enough to keep it preserved. The bacteria take over the, Bacteria that do well in high salt levels, which are not the rotting ones at first, they take over and they change it to a more acidic environment that creates it and makes it preserved. You know, so the 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 fish is, is preserved by the acids and the alcohol that the bacteria create, not by the salt itself. Although the salt does kickstart the preservation process for What's that first few What's the point of weeks. having rice in there? It's that carbohydrate-rich substance the, the sugars in essence for the bacteria to in the, the sometimes yeasts I don't know as much in fish if there's many yeast I think it's mainly bacteria that are um, going to be eating feeding off of that the salt makes it so that those bacteria get to survive in that area the the carbohydrates broken down into sugars are what feed the bacteria and who allow them to prosper creates the bacteria initially the salt and the fish it's a wild fermentation it's it's just in the fish in the carbohydrate uh, rich substances such as rice in the air and so the this produces this form produces a lot more flavors you know a lot more complex flavors fermenting this way because it's the bacteria and, and the yeast that are creating the acids and the alcohols that create that flavor as well. Now, there's umami in this as, as, as well. Fish, fish themselves have a lot of umami flavor to them. And fermentation just kicks it up a notch. But the, the, that fresh fish and vinegared rice, which is what is known as sushi, is where that, that comes from in history. You know, it was fermented fish that became sushi eventually. And, and there are, is still fermented fish in Japan. And, uh, uh, but that's, that's, that's where, it, that's where it, it, it came from. And, and is still to a certain extent, I, I'd like to try that actually, because I like sushi, you know, and, and I've, you know, made sushi in, you know, using the rice vinegar, the sweet rice vinegar, it just makes a lot of sense that, oh, that's where that comes from. That's We don't have any fermented fish in the U.S., do we? Fermented fish? Yes, there's fermented fish. Like just fish or fish pastes. Or... I don't think it's as popular, but you can find these kind of things in, in different ethnic grocery stores. Again, fish sauce being the number one well, fish sauce, paste. But I'm talking about like, yeah. Like... Those, are, those are the main ones that are, are easily imported. We'll get to one later that... The U.S. does not even allow to be imported. Why don't you just get to it now? No, we're saving that one. That that, that that's called a, you know, uh, foreshadowing. 
get people excited, get on your edge of your sheet seat to see what that, that might be in the meantime, you know, it's an, also very interesting to think that fish sauces were the first ketchup. They're the original ketchup. And so the, the modern ketchup that most people know is that tomato sweet, ketchup? And, sweet and sour tomato. You know, it's, yeah, it's that see, condiment that's known around the world, I'm sure at this point, but you know, at least in Western world, tomato ketchup. And it comes from ketchup pecan, which is, um, or, or ketchup, it would be, it would be a, probably a little bit closer pronunciation. Um, it's an Indonesian salty fish condiment and, uh, and ketchup itself refers just to a sauce, uh, you know, a ferment. Can you say Indian? that one more time? Ketchup. <laughs> Sounds funny. Coming from my mouth, I'm sure it would sound a lot better from from someone that that speaks Indonesian. But it's it, ketchup refers to any fermented sauce. Ketchup ikan. How do you refers, know what do you need then? Ketchup ikan is fermented fish sauce. There's fermented soybean sauce. Like it's ketchup would be the general term for any oh, fermented okay. sauce. Like they... soy sauce is very common for ketchup. Um, and and so just any fermented sauce is ketchup. Ketchup ikan is fish sauce. Fermented fish sauce which is where we borrow the word ketchup from. And, you know, both spelled with a K. Uh, so really, you owe the ketchup that we have today a little bit of uh, credit to, to to fish sauce in general. And uh, that's because it's been throughout history in both Europe and Asian countries a way it was the ketchup of the time and disappeared in Europe at some point. Um, you know, but it was, uh, especially Greek in Roman times, it was, it was very popular. It was. Why do you think it disappeared? Just wasn't cool enough anymore. I guess it just stopped being so cool. I mean, maybe tomato ketchup replaced it. Um, but there's, there was different sauces, different things, uh, more readily available. Uh, um, salt was, salt became more available, different. I'm sure there's many different things that kind of changed the pathways and that kind of came out of style. It's also smelly to produce but it's remained a part of of especially thai cuisine and you know uh having lived and traveled in in thailand i I definitely love some fish sauce um and i like to cook with it i don't think of it as often as i probably could because it does add a nice fullness especially to rice dishes Uh, because you think about it in a lot of asian cuisine the bland rice Although, I mean, some rices aren't quite as bland as others, but, you know, a relatively bland food of plain rice, you know, with that fish sauce kick that give that full imami just like brings it all together and it tastes great. But in Thailand, there's actually one kind of fish that's uh, fermented fish that's killing people, but slowly killing people. Wait, what? Yeah. It's a, it's a raw fish in the north and northeast Thailand. Um, and it is responsible for the bile duct cancer or what is called bile duct cancer. And it's, um, it comes from liver flukes, which come from freshwater fish. And the issue is not fermenting the fish long enough, but it's, you know, between one and 5% of people that get infected with this parasite through eating fish that has the parasite, one to 5% contract the cancer. And it's, you know... This fluke is the majority of the like 70 people that die every day from liver cancer. It's because of this. So why are people still eating it? Well, they say it still tastes, it tastes so good and it's part of tradition and, and that's um, crazy, but it's also one of those slow killers. So it's not something that people really can necessarily connect. There's I many, don't many care. I'm just going to stop eating it. If it's even potentially the reason why. Yeah, I mean, there could be many different reasons. I mean, some of the parts of the north and northeast are, you know, a little bit more rural and, uh, you know, not as wealthy. So education on those kind of things may be a little bit more lacking in different things. Some people blame the the government for not making a bigger push to make this something that's important. But yeah, like 70 people a day are dying from liver cancer. Of those, a large majority are coming from this fluke, which is coming from the fresh uh, water fish which doesn't get killed unless fish has been fermented for six months. Now, again, people are going to be getting this if they're eating fresh fluke filled fish as well. But the fermented fish is a very popular 
um, popular dish. It's uh, placon is is the dish, and that's not to be confused with donated pla- people. That's not to be confused with plavra, which is the general term for fish sauce in Thai. But uh, but this placon, this this sour fish. Um, it's really only popular in the Northeast Thailand, supposedly, but, um, you know, it's, it's made by, by taking raw fish, garlic salt, steamed rice, and a pinch of seasoning powder. Why are you telling them how this is made? So that you know, you know, Not why, to eat it. well, what the difference is between this and other fermented fishes, you know, so it's, you take all those mix, that mixture, you, you, you put it into small little egg shaped balls and then, um, put it in plastic bags. Plastic bags are another one of those things at like room temperatures that cause some issues in fermented beaver tail in Alaska using the non-traditional ways. I don't know how traditional this method is, but hanging it in plastic bags and then leaving it in tropical heat for a few days, you know, uh, three days is pretty much all it, all it takes to make placome. And, uh, but that's again, not long enough to kill those parasites. So, so ferment it for longer. I don't know if it'd be placome if it's, it'd probably just become more plowda. If it's, it'd be more just a fermented fish sauce, a paste. If it was fermented longer, it wouldn't be this thing that people really crave and like. Um, That's just crazy. But the other interesting thing is that these liver flukes are not found everywhere. Sure, they're in Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, um, a a lot of that that region in parts of China and um, into Russia or uh, uh, Siberia a little bit as well. But it's interesting that, you know, they're not everywhere. So even like, so Northeast Thailand, down to Bangkok is about a, like a five hour bus drive, uh, ride, a car ride or, or however you want to say it. And pretty much no one gets this infection in Bangkok. You know, they can eat the same kind of fishes. You could probably even eat plasam and be fine. So it's, it's really a, just a difference, but fermenting things or cooking, cooking is the other way to get rid of this parasite, but most people like to eat their raw, fish raw. So yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. Oh, another interesting thing about Thailand. Um, I didn't, well, not interesting about Thailand, but if you want to see more fermented fish in Thailand, there is uh, some episodes of the Iron Sh- or there's one episode of the Iron Chef that's broken up into a few different uh, YouTube videos online that I'll have in the show notes at firmup.com/podcast/slash/sixteen. You can uh, see Iron Chef, the Thai version of it. You there aren't any subtitles or anything like that, so maybe you have to understand Thai. But you know, even if you don't understand Thai, it's still interesting to watch. I'm sure. Uh, I've, well, I scanned through a lot of it to kind of see what the finished dishes were as well. So you can see some different ways that Thai chefs are on a television competition are using uh, fermented fish. And, uh, you know, so the reason why, though, these fermented fishes, you know, like part of the reason, again, why they're popular is that flavor. You know, so piss, uh, fish pastes kind of have a, a strong fish and cheese flavor. So when they're fermented less, they have that, that they get that almost cheese flavor to them. Cheese flavor? How so? Well, like a lot of cheeses are kind of that funky. But how does fish have a cheese flavor? The bacteria that are, are a part of it and the breakdown of everything just kind of creates a lot of those flavors. We should do an episode on flavor science as well sometime and, and, you know, and dive out a little bit farther than just in fermented foods. But um, another, the, the fish sauces have a little bit more of a meaty, savory taste. So, you know, with fish sauce in kimchi or, or in other cooking, it becomes, it's a lot, uh, it's a lot, it gives that more full umami flavor and not the young umami flavor, I guess is, would be a way to say it. But going back to kind of, uh, Roman and Greek times with that original anchovy paste, um, you know, in Greece, it was referred to as garros in Rome. It was referred to as garum or liquimen sometimes, but it was, well, actually one Roman historian, um, referred to it as the liquor from putrefic, the liquor from putrefaction. And so it's, you know, a a little smelly, I'm sure just like garum is, is very similar to modern day fish sauce. Uh, and you know, it's, uh, oh, that historian, Pliny said also scarcely any other liquid except perfume has become more highly valued. I mean, 90% of recipes from Roman times were of included this most every savory dish included garum. 
garum being, again, a fermented anchovy fish sauce, sometimes other fish as well. Is that kind of like salt in our culture today? Yes, that's what that's what I was talking about before with that the, the replacement for salt. It really was a a lot of dishes didn't include salt. They included oh. garum. And it, you, the best was actually made from mackerel. So, you know, a little bit bigger fish than anchovies usually, I think. And then, um, but it, it, garum was made with salting the innards of fish. So instead of doing the whole fish, I'm sure it was made different ways, but this was the main way is salting the innards of fish. So uh, there's a video that's be in the show notes as well that, you know, actually shows some, um, I think, British chef gutting fish while they're still like fresh out of the water. Oh, that's still kind terrible. Of well, but that's the way that it was done traditionally. That's sad. Yes. And talk and, about torture. Yes. Uh, so torturing the fish before, before salting them, salting the innards of them. Isn't that kind of like putting live, what are those animals that are put, put alive into the boiling water? Lobster. Lobster. Yeah. That's horrible. But, it's a culinary tradition that and is very I, popular. Honestly, and I, I don't know anything about this, but I really, does it really make that much of a difference as to how it actually tastes if it's put in I don't think it's alive about or not? I think, oh, I'm, I think I read somewhere they say it actually makes a difference in the taste of it. Well, we're not going to talk about lobster, but about this, sure. um, I think it's about uh, rotting factor, possibly. Um, taking it as fresh as possible. Yes, it probably doesn't have to be that fresh. Like you probably chop the head off first if you wanted to or something like that. But this is being done out at sea to a certain extent or on the coastline. So keeping it as fresh as possible. Put that into a, you know, letting that mixture of guts and salt ferment in the sun for months. So the sun is important here. You put it out in the sun. And so then, you have to live somewhere where there's a lot of sun. It was done in a lot of uh, other, you know, uh, more northern climates. In, Just in the summers? I'm assuming so, since it preserves so well, it's probably done at that time. So no, it's not that it takes a, a lot of sun or tropical sun or equatorial sun or anything like that. I mean, it was done in Roman times and it was, you know, they would ferment it in the sun until the flesh would fall apart. So you'd get that, you know, that pasty consistency and then they would strain out the brown liquid and that was the garum. It was used in as a cooking ingredient mainly, but it was also used as a sauce at the table. So when... Many American households have salt at the table. The Romans would have their garum at the table. So anytime you have a bad dish, just add some to it. To add a little bit. A lot of Asian cuisine will have that as well. It's like if uh, fish sauce, add a little bit of fish sauce to it. Or like in Thailand, there's a uh, fish sauce and um, little chili pepper mix that's oftentimes in in most Thai restaurants. Adding that as a salt of sorts, salt spice, but. The, you know, it was also mixed into wine and vinegar. I couldn't find out any more information about that, but I did find reference to that. So I don't, I don't know what they were doing with that. If they were aging the wine in, or, or vinegar after that point or what that would, I mean, vinegar makes a little bit more sense, but I don't know wine if you're drinking the wine. Interesting though. You know, and, and so again, with all of the recipes, there was, um, Apicius was the recipe book of the day, the cookbook, the, the oldest Roman cookbook known had garum in all every savory recipe and nearly everyone. So it was, it was, it was used all the time. Yeah, kind of like salt. Like salt. Yeah, you'll find salt in most, uh, at least a pinch of salt in different things. And so, yes, the, 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 the amounts of garum were, were different, but it was, it was something that was just very well known. And, uh, it was, oh, here's some information for you with the, the, it was in the 16th century that it kind of died off in the Mediterranean. Uh, it lasted through that and then kind of died off in the Mediterranean area. At that point, that's, um, you know, it's, um, oh, it was, it was more solids, I guess, looking at my notes as well, that it was the, the solid anchovies, salted anchovies kind of replaced garum at a certain point. So it wasn't because they had big garum making facilities outside of towns, kind of stinky. So you don't have it in the cities or the towns or, or whatever they're referred to as, but you have these big operations of producing garum. You know, and so there's still some some remains of those in in different areas of Europe, which are kind of fascinating. That they, they they don't really look like a fish fermenting facility necessarily, unless you know what you're looking for. But still very interesting. And um, you know, uh, some of the the other looking, you know, at at again those sour fishes. You know, not the not the full on fermented. Well, they are, they're, they are fermented, but like, again, fermenting in, in, um, 
carbohydrate rich things like the Nara sushi, which was that sushi that I was talking about earlier. Um, it's the, the, the precursor to sushi. And, uh, you know, so, so the Japanese way of doing that, since we're kind of in these techniques way of, of making things, it's like the, the narazushi is the fish is cut, uh, is gutted and then stuffed with salt. So they're using the, the fish, not the guts, unlike garum, which uses the guts. They're gutting the fish, stuffing it with salt, placing it in a wooden barrel. They're covering it with more salt. They're putting it pressure and weight down on it with the tsuke noishi, which is a pickling stone, which we'll get into more when we get into all the kinds of Japanese pickles out there in a future episode too. This has just been the foreshadowing episode of all the <laughs> things to come. Um, stay tuned. And uh, so then they, they leave it for a few days until any liquid is any liquid that forms is removed. And then another six months, it can be eaten. So it takes about six, a little over six months to get this, uh, this narazushi. But then after that, it will last for another six months or so. So it's a great way to preserve fish, fresh what catches. What a reward after six months of waiting. Oh, it'd be awesome. Especially if it tastes anything like sushi, it'd be, it'd be great. And, uh, you know, in, and speaking of taste, it's kind of a vinegary, buttery and cheesy taste that it, that produces. So it's, um, sounds delicious, odd mixture, but delicious. And it's still something like I was saying earlier that it can, it's still be found today. And it's a called a Funa Zushi, which is a goldfish carp is fermented in, in that way. And, uh, it's in North of Kyoto where that is, I guess, more famously eaten or known of popular there. But looking at a Swedish fermented fish, which is kind of where we'll wrap up for the day, is it's Swedish fermented herring. You know, there's pickled herring and then there's Sir Stroming. Uh, what? Sir Stroming, which is a fermented herring. And it's uh, traditionally fermented in a 200 pound capacity brine barrel so a lot of fish all being put into a barrel and it's left for 10 to 12 weeks you know and then it it's it's left at about 45 to 64 degrees just in case you want to try this yourself and you have 200 pounds of herring to to work with but it was you know originally just eaten directly from the the barrel at some point in history uh, probably once technology became available to do this as well, it started being canned. So, um, sure. Stroming now is, is comes canned. And I found a few YouTube videos and it seems like the, there may be only one popular brand of it because it's this orange can and it bulges. And that bulging is where, where it gets really interesting because it's, it's kind of a, it's a unique bacteria. It's the helioanaerobium, which creates that carbon dioxide and um, hydrogen expansion inside of the can. Now, a can in general, if it's expanding like that and it's canned, it would be, you know, probably not something I'd want to eat if it was canned. But um, halo anaerobium is, you know, it can survive heat, obviously, if it's canned, I think. I mean, I actually don't know if, what kind of canning process they go through. It might just be canned like a... but. Um, but it, it is highly salted and this bacteria can su- survive more salt, uh, and that would kill clostridium, which is one of the pathogens that, you know, infect some people's stomach and they get those fecal transplants, which we talked about in a previous episode, but you know, it's, it's, so it can survive a lot of salt and that expanded can, when it's opened, it kind of just gives this, like oozes out this, this milky brine and kind of bubbles out. I watched a video of, of, of it. It's kind of, kind of interesting. I've never tried it because it's not legal to import. And I guess it was, uh, there was at one point a company that tried to import it and it was sent back or, or denied because they said it was rotten, which is understandable because it, it supposedly smells kind of like, but still that just sounds like a very uneducated rule. Oh, it's rotten. Let's turn it back. I mean, look more into it. Is it really rotten? Are people dying in, do you say it's in Sweden? Sweden. Are people dying over there from eating it? I mean, it just sounds a little ridiculous. Well, they might've thought it was just a 
Bad Batch. I don't know. It's not, as far as I know, if you know of this being available in the United States, I'd love to try it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go to Sweden and, and smuggle some back, uh, which is what Harold McKee did, uh, uh, he, the, the author of um, On Food and Cooking. He, um, McKee brought back some from Sweden, some Sjöströmming, and uh, it's also illegal most on on most airlines, I guess, uh, because of not for the the rotting factor. Although if one of those were to be opened, I'm sure it would stink up the entire airline. It's more for the expansion uh, explosive possibility, since the can is really expanded. Really, should look at some of those YouTube videos or photos. Just search Sjöströmming, and it's very uh, you know expanded. I, I wonder how it's stacked in the stores, grocery stores or whatnot. Because you can't really stack it, I don't think. But maybe you can. I, I didn't see any photos of that. But he smuggled some back. And uh, he, they did a little video and an article about trying it. Uh, the participant that tried it. Um, you know. But in general, it smells like Parmesan cheese and stinky fish water to a certain extent. You know, Which doesn't necessarily sound that appetizing. But we're talking about fish, fermented fishes here. So they get a little bit more like of a funky smell anyway. You know, some like some funky cheeses as well. But, uh, you know, it's often eaten on buttered cracker with mashed potatoes and then it kind of just blends right in with all the flavor. It's definitely more popular with older generations. And I don't know as many of the younger generations are necessarily liking it, but Hey, it's, it's like many different things. There's those funky flavors that taste good to older generations. And if they're just not like conditioned in, or maybe it's more modern diets that just don't make that taste as good. Um, there's definitely no need for this nearly rotten tasting fish to be eaten it's because we don't need it for needs, preservation. It's not the taste. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's why I want to try it. And I guess given that I don't have 200 pounds of herring in the Midwest of the United States, I probably won't be making it all too off, uh, all too soon, but, <laughs> all I, too often. Um, but I, I would like to make some, some fish sauce and, and try that at some point. But in in just kind of a a closing to to think about Sir Thromming. And if you've ever had it, please do let us know. Share your thoughts on on what if you like it or whatnot. But but that one partic- participant that uh, and it was only one participant that appeared to try it with uh, Harold McKee. And uh, they said the experience was more like eating cured fish while sitting next to a dumpster than eating actually rotten fish. And what he was referring to was the smell is way worse than the taste. So if you can get over That's the smell. Like fish sauce. Like fish sauce. I've never tried drinking straight fish sauce. Apparently it seems like you can. Really? Well, didn't you say some places have it mixed in with like. Oh, in Roman times they had it mixed in with their wine. Well, I don't know what no, they meant by didn't that. Didn't you say fish sauce mixed in with some peppers in restaurants? That's to put onto dishes though. That's not to drink. Well, yeah, but you're still kind of eating it raw. It's just, it's kind of oh, like. As opposed to cooked, you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but I mean like drinking it. Like I wonder if, oh, since you say yeah. it smells stinky, just straight up like that. Wait, if, do you disagree with me? I, I. You like I the go smell of fish forth. sauce. It smells, I mean, I wash my hands if I get a little bit on my hands it's because it would start to smell, smell. kind of. It's a, it's a little weird. Unless you really like the smell so of good. feet. You get that full umami flavor. Well, yeah, the taste. I'm asking about the smell. You seem to not agree with well, me. I don't think it smells, I think it smells good compared to what it sounds like Sir Thromming sounds, uh, tastes like or smells like, I mean, but again, a lot of these foods, cheeses as well, that smell really funky. If you can get over the smell of what body parts they may remind a person of or what kind of Feet. rotting fish or dumpsters that they remind a person of, the taste can be amazing. And part of that is the umami and part of it is the fermentation. And so there's just some really fascinating flavors out there. Fermented fish is one of those. So if you haven't tried fish sauce, fish paste, stirstroming, garum, anything, you know, definitely give it a try. If coming you're from Brandon, things, if you're who, not vegan or vegetarian, coming from Brandon, who hasn't tried half of those things either. <laughs> well, I've almost tried garum because it's almost. similar to. Fish sauce. <laughs> wow. Tried fish paste, but definitely not sure strumming. So if you can smuggle any into the United States, let me know. I'd like to try it. Not that he's in- encouraging illegal activity or anything like well, that. Well, no, not yes. But if you by chance somehow 
some appears, um, I'd be interested to, to try it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go to Sweden at some point and give it a try. But if you uh, want to share your thoughts on any fermented fishes, whether you like them, whether you don't, or anything else, you can reach us at podcast at firmup.com. You can also go on the Facebook at facebook.com slash firmup, Twitter at firmup, Pinterest, pinterest.com slash firmup, where anywhere that firmup could be, you'll probably find us there as firmup, except for YouTube, where firmup videos. If you uh, want to let us know what you have to say, share them there. Otherwise, we will see you. You will hear us next week. Just keep fermenting. Add a, a fish sauce to your kimchi if you haven't tried it before. And we'll see you next week. Firm up. Fish sauce.